Welcome to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning radio show and podcast featuring your physician host, Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally, where we and our guests discuss relevant health-related topics from an authentically Catholic perspective. But first, a public service announcement. Medicine's integrity, reclaiming the doctor-patient relationship, is the theme of the Catholic Medical Association's annual educational conference, which will be held virtually September 25th and 26th. The CMA, the Catholic Medical Association, made the switch from in-person to virtual, probably no big surprise to our listeners due to the pandemic, (laughs) but it's excited to foster faith and fellowship uh, as they convene national experts in areas like humanities, law, psychology, physiology, theology, all of the ologies uh, to shine a light (laughs) on important national and cultural issues that might compromise the doctor-patient relationship. And one of my favorite things about perennially going to this conference are the big speakers we bring in. And this year's conference keynote speakers, EWTN anchor and award-winning journalist Raymond Arroyo. We also are going to have pro-life activist Abby Johnson speaking. So if anybody's interested, they should definitely key up to this. And attendees can actually earn nearly 37 CME credits. And attendees can receive access to all of the recorded talks, which if you tried to purchase them, that's a savings of about $995. So registration is now open and more information is available at www.cathmed.org. And as usual, today's show will be heard across the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. We didn't have to look all that far for this week's guest, just a couple of doors down from my office, unraveling the mysteries of the family physician with our own family physician, Dr. Andrew Mullally. We'll continue our series on various medical specialties so that you get a better understanding of not only what types of patients each specialty treats, but what training and experience is necessary to become a physician in that specialty. And Andrew has some information Um, what it takes to be a family physician. But first, he wants to talk about some general topics within the world of specialty and non-specialty medicine. Yeah, we always have kind of that introductory quarter, right, where we like to bring in a little bit of background information. So I thought we're talking about primary care in general. It might be worth it to, to kind of discuss, you know, how the idea of specialty versus primary care came to be. You know, it, it was not always this way in the past. And uh, in kind of doing some research, you know, the things that many people kind of identify is around the early 1900s, there being a shift. But before that, um, medical practitioners and doctors, you know, everybody was kind of, it was on the job training. They had medical schools, but frequently they were only one year long. And let's be honest, the, the science was not as robust in quantity or quality in the 1800s as it is now. Uh, I never learned leaching in medical school, um, although I know they did that quite a bit back then. And really there was something called the Flexner Report in 1910. And after that, we started seeing a big change in medical schools, didn't we, Tom? Can you imagine a one-year medical school? That's just, I went to Mayo Clinic and I remember... uh, the Mayo brothers, one went to Northwestern and one went to University of Michigan for a year and came back with their father and started the Mayo Clinic. Uh, but the, the funny thing is, when I went to medical school, I dreamed my whole high school, college of being a family physician. Why? Because they could do it all. They could operate in the operating room. They could deliver babies. They could, could take care of kids and old people. There was nothing they couldn't do. But I discovered that by the mid to late 1980s, there was a lot they couldn't do, right? That's right. A lot of things were changing because really after the, I'd, I'd say there's a couple of things that went into it. We got a lot more scientific. There was a lot more things that could be mastered and it's hard to master everything, you know, and with the advance of technology, there was a lot of things that lent themselves to being specialized in. You know, if you think about someone taking out your tonsils, for example, you probably want somebody who does 10 a day rather than, (laughs) you know, once a month or a couple a year, you know, that would give you more confidence. 
So, Andrew, my parents are from a little bitty town in western Kentucky, and it had one physician in the town, and his name was Doc White. I remember hearing that growing up, and his office was over his house. And um, if you got sick, you went to see Doc White. I mean, if you got shot, you went to see him. It, no matter what, you went to see him. And he didn't have office hours. He didn't have appointments. He certainly didn't have an electronic medical record. Um, but he probably, in that era, went to medical school and then went right into practice. Right. And, it, and those, they were often called general practitioners or GPs. Yeah. And then when did that shift from become, being kind of the norm to calling oneself a family physician that specialized in, in family medicine? Right, yeah. Really, I'd say as the, the number of specialties and specialized training after medical school came, became more popular really in the 40s through the 70s is when we started seeing that change where it used to be you know, between maybe 1910 and the 1940s that people would do a one-year kind of internship and then go out into practice as a general practitioner. Well, eventually that one-year internship became a one or more than one year in a specific area, whether it be dermatology or gastroenterology or what have you. And in 1969 is when they came up with a new specialty called family medicine, which was really just a three-year kind of rotating um, specialty internship where you did the same type of things as you came out as a general practitioner, but you had three years of kind of on-the-job training instead of just one. And so it, it kind of developed into a specialty at that point where really now, you know, you have the board certification and things like you do in other specialties, but the postgraduate training after medical school is shorter than a lot of the other subspecialties. Do you think it'd be fair to say as a family physician yourself, I'd specialized in being a generalist. <laughs> you know, I think so. And I mean, I know we're going to kind of delve into my story a yes. little bit later, but it is, it is something, you know, I've never really thought of it as a specialty as opposed to a generalist, but I think there is something there. And, and the one thing that I reflect on a lot during, during my daily life, and especially while I was in training is, Gee whiz, you know, the miles you put in, especially having uh, a superior and attending physician you can turn to, that's really where you get the breadth of your quality as a provider, as a doctor. You know, if you do one year of training, not to say that there's anything wrong with that, but my confidence in what I could do and what I should do just grew exponentially with the additional years of training. So I, I'm a whole fan of that decision. And Ultimately, I think I think it kind of ended up being a good decision because now it's it's a desperately needed specialty that hopefully a lot of people consider. Well, let's go with that desperate part. How hard is it for patients to find a primary care physician? And what is primary care? Are you the only game in town or are there other uh, groups of physicians considered primary care physicians? Yeah, those are good questions. You know, Family medicine, I would say, is probably what someone would think of as primary care if you thought of a stereotype. But actually, primary care encompasses several specialties, including OB-GYN, internal medicine, pediatrics, and general practice. And basically, this whole group of folks would be the person that you turn to when you have a generic medical need and thinking it's your primary person that you go to. And for a lot of kids, that's a pediatrician. For a lot of ladies, it's an OB-GYN, you know, and family medicine fits into that realm. But that's, that's a substantial number of, of specialties. So, Chris, I remember hearing in the past OB-GYN considered a primary care, but on other lists, I see it isn't. What's the, the latest thinking? Well, at the risk of sounding cynical, I wouldn't want to disappoint any of our listeners, but, you know, the whole primary care designation, I believe, started... Uh, in the years leading up to uh, the Accountable Care Act, or so-called Obamacare. Ah. Everyone wanted to be called primary care because that was very fashionable. Um, And that was talked about, it was desperately needed, and everything was going to be centered on primary care. And so you had... You had specialties coming out of the woodwork saying, well, I'm, I'm primary care, I'm primary care, look at me. Uh, and I, I think obstetrics and gynecology sort of is guilty of that a, a bit. 
back in those years. Our particular specialty has always tried to say that it was both a specialty and primary care, which, you know, is a little bit of cheating depending on the nature of it. Yes. Um, but it's an interesting thing. We do this in medicine across a lot of specialties, how we sort of self-designate uh, for the moment or the market uh, yes. or, or what maybe meets our unique needs. Uh, and it's one of the complexities of American medicine. And I, I think that's a good thing to, to reflect on as well is that it's kind of different in other countries, you know, yes. where in America, the majority of people having commercial insurance rather than a state-sponsored plan, at least for now, gives people the ability to choose the doctor they want to see. So if somebody knows I have a massive skin cancer growing on my nose, they're not going to really necessarily waste their time seeing somebody that's just going to send them on to Tom McGovern. They're going to jump to Tom if they're allowed to, you know. And the same thing if you know my, my arm is broken or I need my tonsils out, you know, they're going to call the orthopedic guy or the ENT straight away rather than going through kind of a gatekeeper. And really, that's what you see in, in many areas, uh, different parts of the world where it's socialized in state-sponsored medicine. You have to go to your family doctor first to get the referral. We're seeing that actually in America with many of the state-sponsored plans like Medicaid, where the family doctor is supposed to be the gatekeeper and avoid giving referrals unless they absolutely need it so that the state can save money. Unfortunately, that really limits the ability of patients to choose what they want to do. So it's a very different model. Yeah, and I, I'm, uh, I'm admittedly old enough to remember when the whole concept of a HMO uh, and the big Humana machine sort of came into vogue, um, you know, during the, the, the so-called Hillary Care years. Um, and everyone was going to have to see a primary care person to get to a specialist. That was going to save money because it was going to prevent unnecessary uh, referrals using more of a Canadian or a British kind of a gatekeeper approach. And, you know, from a societal standpoint, we Americans don't like that, do we? Yeah, uh, it's not the, an American idea. <laughs> and the, patient, the patients balked at that back then. They, they always balk when that comes up and don't like it. So one last question before the break, Andrew, uh, piggybacking on something we mentioned earlier, how much of a shortage is there in primary care docs in our country? You know, I'd say substantial and growing. Um, you'll read a variety of different numbers, how many thousands or tens of thousands every year it's going to be shorter. But really, that that is a real thing, and it's worsening every day as a function of two things. People are living longer, especially the baby boomers, you know, um, whom I love, you know. <laughs> yeah. And uh, additionally, the other thing is fewer people are choosing primary care as a specialty. Lots of reasons for that. Some, some are self-evident, but uh, that gap continues to widen. So it's hard to put a number on it, but it'd be on the order of thousands per year. So before our break, we have our patented medical trivia question. And since this special episode has three co-hosts, this question has three parts. But don't expect that for the next time we do this. So anyway, the 2018 Physician Specialty Data Report of the Association of American Medical Colleges said there were nearly 900,000 physicians practicing in the U.S. in 2017. So here's your questions. Out of these 900,000 physicians, what percentage of them were practicing family medicine or that older term general practice. The second part, in that year there was only one field of medicine that had more first year residents after medical school, otherwise known as internship, than family medicine. What was that field of medicine that had more interns than family medicine? And finally, what percentage of family physicians decide to practice medicine in the same state where they did their residency training? You have lots of time to think about this because you won't get the answers till the end of the show. But we'll be back with more of Andrew Mullally and Family Medicine after the break. And we're back with our special guest of the day. And who would be more special than Andrew Mullally, who's going to talk about family medicine? We're going to learn more about the backstory that Andrew has. He grew up in the thumb of the lower peninsula of Michigan, the oldest of nine children to two parents who are both 
family physicians, no peer pressure there. He went to college at Ave Maria University down near Naples, Florida. He then went back north to Michigan where he went to medical school at Michigan State University. He did his family medicine residency here in Fort Wayne, Indiana at the Fort Wayne Medical Education Program. And then with the heroic assistance of his dear wife, Veronica, started a private practice, which is really challenging to do these days, called Credo, Family Medicine Credo, as in the Latin for I believe. Uh, Credo is flourishing. Uh, he is adding on providers, seeing lots of patients, despite the fact that he also has six children already. Andrew, we don't need to welcome you. Just thanks for being here. Yeah, I'm glad to be here, Tom. You you say that well. That sounds great. <laughs> so, and I didn't make up any of it. So, Michigan State, when I was applying to med school, I noticed it has two medical schools. It has yeah. an allopathic and an osteopathic, MD and DO. Why did you choose MD? Well, and, you know, people from Michigan State would say there's three because they have a vet school, too. <laughs> <laughs> only, yes. only state in the country or only school in the country, cool. in my knowledge, with three. I think you're right. So, it's uh I really liked it, you know. I I don't I don't know if I put a great deal of thought into the MDDO uh distinction. Uh, my folks were MDs and so naturally that's kind of where I applied. And in retrospect, I I almost wish I had considered uh applying to DOs in specific because uh all of my friends that I trained with in residency, a lot of them were DOs and it's interesting there's a bit of a history there where you know, 50 years ago, DOs did not practice the same type of medicine as MDs. Um, but now we practice the exact, exact same type of medicine, except DOs can do a lot of extra stuff that I can't do. And so patients really like the manipulative behaviors and stuff that the DOs can do. Chiropractic-like, not psychological manipulation. That's true. That's true. <laughs> Chiropractic manipulation. It's nice for you to point that out. out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And so patients, a lot of people seek that out and I got exposed to some of that stuff in training. I wish I had even more of it, but uh, yeah, I kind of fell into the MD route. So Andrew, and, and we're not going to let you say I did it because of my parents, but uh, you did <laughs> medical school, you finished your four years of medical school and you decided I'm not going to be an orthopedic surgeon. I'm too smart to be an obstetrician. So, uh, <laughs> What can, and I enjoy talking to patients too much to be a dermatologist. <laughs> how did you how did you decide uh, to pursue specialty and specialization in family medicine? You know, uh, great question. I think everybody finds their way to family medicine differently. My path's probably not unique, but I, I liked it because every different thing in medicine I got exposed to, I really liked. And um, the thing that I was kind of down on was the idea of doing a handful of things 30 times a day for 40 years. I really like the idea of doing a million different things every single day. And uh, instead of being good at a few things, I'd be okay being bad at everything or <laughs> at least mediocre at everything. Um, but I, you know, even growing up, I, I've always been somebody I've really admired uh, people in like the Renaissance or the founding fathers where they, really were kind of the jack of all trades. It's a bit cliche, but I liked that part of family medicine where, you know, I probably probably could finish the job for 80% of people and not every time, but I could really get everybody started on the right path. And so I liked the utility of family medicine. Now, based on your experience and exposure to young residents and medical students, do you, do you think that's a common characteristic that leads people to family medicine? I'd say it's a mixed bag. You know, I'd say family medicine has got kind of a bimodal sometimes distribution where it is, you know, openly it's the least competitive specialty. So some people fall into family medicine because those are the options they have. And a lot of them turn out to be great doctors because there's nobody who gets through medical school on accident. I mean, so they do a great job, but some people kind of fall into it. I think a lot of people choose it on purpose because they like the variety. And one of the things, in addition to the variety, is the flexibility. Um, uh, we, we know family medicine doctors who work 100% in the ER. Some work 100% in the hospital. Some people do 100% outpatient, 100% OB. There's a family doctor that we've talked to on this show who does brain surgery in Sudan. 
you know, and uh, the whole world is your oyster. And so, you know, my, my practice has changed from what I thought it was going to be, even when I finished residency, you know, four years ago now. Um, but you develop into the practice that your community needs. And family medicine gives you the ability to do that. So, Andrew, even though I went to an uber-specialized medical center at Mayo Clinic, they made sure each of us medical students actually lived for one week with a rural family physician. Trying to scare you into the specialties, huh? uh, (laughs) Well, it worked for me because I wanted to be a family physician until then. And the guy I was with, we were up in the middle of the night every night and i was dragging the whole week and i'm thinking how can this guy keep up this pace so and you saw it in your parents presumably how did you get past that or or just do you just need less sleep than the average bear (laughs) well you know i i don't think family medicine is necessarily worse than most specialties in that i mean to some extent because people practice in smaller groups or a lot of people practice solo and uh, the call burden is huge depending on what type of things you do. You know, a lot of family doctors do OB um, and, and deliver babies. Chris knows what that call burden's like. And uh, when, when you're solo or in a small group, that really eats away at your life. That's been something that, you know, as, as my family's grown, I had to try and find a way that I could be more available for my family. And so that, that is one nice thing, though, is that you can adjust your practice to what you love to do and what you're able to do. So I think family medicine can probably have the worst possible call, but I think it can also have one of the better possible calls if that's, if that's what you want. How grueling was the residency training and how well were the restrictions on hours, which I believe average 80 hours over a four-week period per week? Yeah, I'd say the residency training uh, at times was was grueling, but mostly moderate. Um, I'd say probably in the different specialties, it would fall in the middle as far as how grueling it is. I definitely talked to friends where it's a lot easier in some specialties. Hmm. I've talked to friends where, you know, it's kind of the, the culture is cutthroat in residency. Our residency at least my experience was very team oriented, which was wonderful. And when you're working on the same team, you can get a heck of a lot of work done when everybody's fighting together, you know? So there were definitely times when it's grueling. The hours thing's very interesting. I, uh, I appreciate the benefit of not, not being overtired, but the fact of the matter is, you know, even when you, I guess I would say in my experience, there were some, some rotations where they were very strict about the 80 hours, other ones where they were not as strict. Mm-hmm. And on the times when we got the extra time, nobody really, I think, was sleeping. Uh, everybody went and picked up odds and ends, jobs, moonlighting. So even having the extra time, I don't know that it, it necessarily led to people being more rested, which was the whole goal of it. So I, I'd probably be in the group that's a little bit down on the hour restrictions just because I think there's something about in training while you have multiple levels of supervision, getting really stressed out and having a lot of critical patients, but you, you have somebody to back you up. The truth is, is that after you finish, there's no hour restrictions, it gets harder <laughs> and you've got no backup. And so I think kind of that being tested by fire has been a critical, a critical component of medical training. I wouldn't want to lose that. So Andrew, walk listeners through uh, a day in the life of you. What, uh, what's a day <laughs> like? What's a week like? If they were going to trail along with you, what would, they have to, what would they have to do to keep up with you? Yeah, you know, it's, it's so interesting. My, my experience is different than many people's because of having the private practice. So the majority of my worry and changes in my schedule are related to trying to to run the practice, um, trying to stay alive, stay in business, um, working on HR stuff, hiring people, um, reorganizing schedules, and, and trying to figure out we can't run this blood test because we've been losing money on that for three years, or we got to make sure we look at this insurance contract. 
that's where most of my stress lies. Um, that'd be very different for many family doctors. I'd say for most family doctors that you talk to, um, if they round in the hospital, if they still see inpatients, they get up and the first stop is the hospital. I'd say even people who don't see medical patients, a lot of people still see new babies in the hospital. And you probably have two or three patients in the hospital most mornings. Then you'd hit the office and you go, go, go all day, um, 15 to 20 minutes slotted for each patient, where hopefully four or five minutes of that is charting so you don't bring all your charts home. I uh, skip lunch, finish at five or six, and you're running late a lot. And at night, you have some charts to finish. And so it can be super stressful. That, that's kind of a pessimistic view, but it doesn't have to be that way. I find that one of the things I've done in my life was I found that I couldn't keep up effectively doing inpatient medical care. We still see new babies, but that was something I let go so that I could focus on doing a really good job in the clinic, getting my charts done so I could still come home and be a dad and not be charting all night like a lot of my colleagues are. Yeah, it doesn't so, have to be that bad. You could have chosen dermatology. That would have <laughs> <laughs> Well, I mean, it's definitely, it's, it definitely, the current setup lends itself to burnout, which is one of the things we, we like to talk about on this show because it's a real problem. But I always like to encourage folks to, to kind of take command of their own life and, and work out your priorities. I mean, you know, we could do an entire show on the uniqueness of your, and frankly, my practice model. We're, we're sort of dinosaurs here as independent um, entrepreneurial, for lack of a better term, the majority of physicians in markets of size are now employed by hospital systems. And we've seen that change dramatically just in the last few years. But to your point, it really is a different conversation. I, I saw a statistic maybe two or three years ago for people finishing residency in family medicine, and only 4% joined a private practice. Wow. 96% joined a hospital. And I think a fraction of those started a private practice probably. And so it really is something that you're not going to see. So it, it's a little bit of a unique experience. And if you think from a, from a purely family medicine-centric perspective, what are the implications or at least the potential implications nationwide for the majority of family, family medicine physicians being employed by big hospital systems? You know, I think it's bad. Um, I think it's bad for a lot of reasons. The one thing I do, be, because my parents are physicians and, and I've got a bit of a history from growing up with them, I, I find that the employed versus independent model is a bit cyclic. So I have hope just from the past history that it might not always be this way. But the thing that I see is that when family doctors become employed, that all of a sudden it's not their patient. It's the hospital's patient. Oh. Uh, and that leads to a different type of care. When somebody calls in with a sick little baby at the end of the day and you really want to go home, if that's your patient, you make time for them because that's the right thing to do. If it's the hospital's patient, somebody else will take care of it. It's not my problem. Hmm. And I, Andrew, I think patient care suffers for that. That's a great place to take a break here. We'll be back with more on the fascinating inside story of what it's like to be Andrew Mullally in the Family Physician. Abortion. Pornography. Embryonic stem cell research. Corporate contributions to Planned Parenthood. Do you invest in companies that are engaged in these practices? The Ave Maria Mutual Funds do not. And their investment portfolios reflect that. Ave Maria Mutual Funds are managed to conform to pro-life and pro-family values. Long-term investors can invest in the no-load Ave Maria Mutual Funds. You can learn more about the Ave Maria Mutual Funds today at 866-AVE-MARIA or visit AveMariaFunds.com. And we're back on Dr. Doctor with our special guest and co-host, Dr. Andrew Mullally. So, Andrew, give us a sense of you know, the highs, what, what are the most fulfilling aspects or the greatest joys of being a family physician? You know, family medicine, I'd say, is, is a bit different in this way because most of the joys are not necessarily medical, but human joys, where a lot of times, especially in training, and I, I would kind of think in certain specialties, man, when you have a really good case and you, you perform a surgery that you could have messed up on and you did awesome. 
that'd be great. Or you discover something that 10 people missed, that'd be awesome. In family medicine, it's a little bit different. It's, it's really the greatest joys I have are, are when I, I can tell that you are seriously helping people. I mean, for me, the way I try and look at family medicine is, is truly kind of a, a path for me to try and get to heaven and to try and be Christ to other people. And so there's a lot of times I, I'm always kind of, I don't know it's, if it's a weird thing to say, but a lot of people cry when I'm talking to them. And, <laughs> and uh, it, it makes me feel like it's an it's a enjoyment for me because you can tell these people are taking a load off that they can't tell anybody else. You know, as Catholics, we at least have confession. A lot of people don't have that. So whether it be guilt about something or fear or, you know, really anything, having the ability to bring comfort to the afflicted on a regular basis and then to see them thrive and kind of help them through that. And uh, that's where I get the, the greatest joy by far is when you can see somebody struggling and, uh, and walk them through it and see them recover. And, uh, you know, people always talk about uh, how, how to try and make the world a better place. But I, my thought is you got to focus on, okay, I've got to tend to my garden, the people I come across in my life, my kids and my patients. And when you see successes like that, you're like, man, that is such a blessing to be able to be an instrument in that way. That's beautiful, uh, Andrew. Uh, you've already touched on it, but are there other ways that your Catholic beliefs affect what you do on a day-to-day -day basis as a family physician? Oh, I'd say 100%. You know, there's, there's all of the kind of usual um, human dignity stuff that we talk about on this show and, and most of our listeners are familiar with. You know, obviously not, not participating and encouraging people uh, against abortion, birth control, sterilization, euthanasia, all the usual suspects. Um, but one of the things I think that is not talked about enough is how your Catholic worldview of the human person changes the way you practice medicine regarding things like patients' despair or you know, the medical system kind of giving up on people, so to speak. Um, an, an example, it's a bit of a controversial example, but one of the things I see it with is uh, chronic pain management, where a lot of times people fall onto daily heavy, heavy medicine, um, not because they need it. Some people, some people may need that, but a lot of people, because they've given up and the medical system's given up on them, and there's no hope in the future. I see that with depressive people as well, you know? And so I think the biggest way that, that my faith impacts my practice is trying to give everyone hope. Um, even if they've got a terrible medical condition, you know, your physical health does not define who you are or your eternity. And so there's always room for hope and trying to, to be an instrument of hope is something that I, I like to do. Andrew, you've touched on these two, but are there ways in which certain ethical things uh, affect you as a family physician that you have to wrestle with each day? And, and what ways have you found to do that in a way that patients will receive as loving? Yeah, I'd say, you know, on a regular basis, we, we do run into kind of all the usual, usual suspects I listed. Now, I'm in a unique situation because my practice is openly Catholic. It's in the name. It's all over the website. We've got crosses <laughs> in every room, crucifixes. And so uh, I'm, all, I'm still surprised a lot of people find their way into here without keying up to all that. <laughs> but I'd say that the biggest thing when dealing with this is have a positive response. You know, you can't just say my faith um, prohibits me from doing that. I can't participate. You should see a different doctor. Uh, that turns them off and you should be turned off to that. I think we can do better. And, and that's really my answer to everything. When somebody challenges me with something, whether, whether it's any of those things, I say, you know, I understand why you would want that. I appreciate the situation you're in, but I think we can actually do better for you and I want the best for you. So this is what I would recommend. And you kind of lead them on that path, always pivoting back to hope. And so we do see the, the usual stuff, but, if you answer them with hope and there's something better out there, people always want what's better. You just have to be 
you just have to be effective at explaining that to them. That is beautiful, Andrew. Um, Andrew, does every person need a family physician? Um, I'd say probably they should have one. You know, you could make it through your whole life without having one, but you wouldn't be better off for it. I, I think having a family physician is an important thing because, you know, I don't know what percentage. I'd say 90% of stuff we can take care of without seeing a specialist. And that helps because then the specialist can focus on the people that really do need their help. It's cheaper for you because family doctors get paid less for doing similar work. And it's nice because you can get the longitudinal care where if we kind of go through a couple healthcare things together, it, you know, I think it might be akin to, to, you know, almost going through battles together. When you put down that kind of mileage, you trust each other more. You can, you can figure out exactly what the other person wants. And I think you can be more effective in providing regular care, always having a specialty backup when needed. But I think the temptation in America is to think, especially for people who can, I want the best. So I have many people, I know many patients have, you know, eight specialists and they'll just see me like once in a great while. And, and sometimes I, I try and just introduce the idea, like I could probably do a lot of this for you and you could just see the specialist when needed. So instead of going to 30 doctor appointments a year, you could do like two with me and then here and there with the specialist. But everybody, you know, it's the American model allows for a lot of different things. But I think there's a lot of benefits to having a family doctor. Tom, I do my best. When I see a complicated patient, I say, you need a real doctor for this problem. <laughs> Go to Credo Family Medicine, Dr. Mullally. <laughs> so yeah. I'm, I'm doing my best to buck that trend and, and, uh, and be supportive. But, but I would echo what you say as a non-family physician. When I see patients, it's clear to me if they don't have a longitudinal trusting relationship with a primary care physician who's looking out for them across, you know, across the spans and the chapters of their lives, who's thinking ahead and not just thinking episodically. Uh, I would say as a specialist, I'm pretty good at episodic care at treating the, the disaster of the moment, but somebody needs to be looking across the whole lifespan and, it's been my impression, not only from you, but certainly from you, Andrew, but from all good family physicians that that's where they really excel uh, is in getting people through those transitions and there, keeping watch. There's a lot of times too when, you know, you might meet a patient and for whatever reason, they're really worked up about something and you know what they need to do, but they're really not in a place to hear it right off the bat. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, there's, there's something to, to kind of leading people to where they want to go. Um, and sometimes that takes time. And it's just hard to do if you don't have a consistent medical provider. Andrew, do you think, and if you do think so, why does the world need more authentically Catholic family physicians? You know, I would say after maybe priests and nuns, Maybe Catholic family doctor would be number three about most needed things. Uh, that was part of my thought process getting here after I kind of, I, I figured out I wanted to Well, you to get ruled married. out number two. You, you couldn't be a nun. Yeah. <laughs> after I figured out that I wanted to get married uh, and start a family, then one and two were out of the way. I thought number three was the thing that God was calling me to and probably calling a lot of people being a, a physician in general, especially a Catholic physician and a family physician, definitely I would not tell anybody that it's a, a cushy way to go or an easy way to go. Um, you definitely put in a lot of time, but it is so fulfilling. And like most things in life, the, the things that provide the most fulfillment, the most joy, sometimes are the greatest challenges and struggles. Um, but the world desperately needs Catholic physicians, especially in family medicine, because the, the average family doctor is going to have 200,000 patient visits over their career. And so for some people, that's, that's their only time they're going to encounter potentially, you know, the Catholic faith. You know, a lot of times you, you are somebody in their life that they turn to. And so 
I would say you can do so much good. I'd be hard pressed to find a better place to spend your time. Well said. Thank you. We need more Catholic physicians. We need more physicians like you. So thank you. Andrew, earlier on, you talked about some different things that a family physician can do. Because, you know, my impression growing up was family physician that was always, well, after they rounded the hospital in the morning, uh, they'd spend the bulk of their day in the office seeing outpatient visits, and then they go back to the hospital to attend to other things. But that's really the minority now. What are some of the options after you have finished a family medicine residency? You know, and that's one of the reasons I chose family. I was, I actually, actually, I was kind of neck and neck with general surgery when it came down to choosing a residency for myself. But one of the reasons I opted for family medicine was that there's unlimited opportunities and you can change. You're a little bit pluripotent. Where <laughs> You're like a stem cell, an adult stem cell. Adult stem cells, of course. Uh, I finally made it to the adulthood. <laughs> but no, I... You know, there's, there's people, uh, a lot of people who do seven days, 12 hours a day in the hospital, but then they have seven days off doing oh. hospital medicine. There's a lot of people that you can work one day a week in the office as a part-time doctor. You can work six days in the office. Um, when I was in residency, every other weekend, I did a 24-hour shift in a little podunk ER that I loved, podunk as a, as a positive adjective. Um, and <laughs> it was a great experience me, for me, but a lot of family doctors end up doing straight ER work or straight missionary work or straight academics. A lot of them go into teaching in medical school or in residency. And, you know, people talk about burnout it, in some specialties. If you're a pathologist and you get burnout with whatever you're doing, there's a couple areas in pathology, not to pick on them, um, but you are somewhat limited. You're not going to go start working in an ER or an urgent care or seeing hospital patients. When you're in family medicine, really at any point, if you want or need to move across the country, you'll have plenty of work options and there's something for everyone. So you'll always have opportunity. So, I mean, some of the things I was just trying to brainstorm, there's actually fellowships you can do after residency. I know there was sports medicine, even yep. a, a, an OB type of Right. Fellowship. Yeah. Um, there's uh, hospital administration, uh, getting an MBA. Uh, some work rural and do a lot of OB-GYN. Uh, you mentioned the hospitalist in ER, but you could be employed or like you, or even industrial medicine. They'll just be like the company doc. Yeah. And geriatric medicine is another specialty. So there's a lot of options. I'd, I would say family medicine doctors in general specialize less than internal right. medicine um, because one of the things I always looked at, I like, I like doing all sorts of stuff and the specialties in family medicine don't necessarily open new doors for you beyond the regular residency. Whereas uh, in, in radiology, if you do interventional radiology, whole bunch of new procedures you can't do as a general radiologist. Family medicine, the specialties are very good for extra training they don't open as many new doors. So I think that's why a lot of people don't do them, but they, especially if there's something, you know, you love, man, there's so much work out there to do. And then, well, and then they can work in academia. Uh, now there's a new fellowship uh, in addiction medicine. If you really want to go that route, I don't know how much that would help you. Uh, and then a lot of, it's a good specialty if you want to be a missionary physician, isn't it? Oh yeah. I'd say a hundred percent. I mean, missionary stuff, you'd either do family or surgery or both, you know, but if you're going to be the one guy and, and a lot of times that, that's kind of what I always envisioned before I, I fell in love with our community here. I always envisioned going out to live someplace where you're the only doctor for 50 or a hundred miles and you do everything. That's kind of what I was prepped for. Uh, and God had different plans for me, but especially if you want to do missionary medicine, I'd say family medicine would be the obvious choice. What do you wish everybody knew about family medicine or family physicians that they often don't know? Um, I guess I would say that it's probably more stressful than it looks. And, you know, if, you, if you're a patient, I've got so many patients and I, I care deeply about all of them, but if you can give, give a little bit of grace 
to when the doc's running late or, or when, you know, something does not go perfectly because there's a lot going on behind the scenes. And uh, I see it in myself, my colleagues and my staff where people are kind of, there's an opportunity to get stressed out from the amount and the, the severity of work that you have to do. And uh, it's amazing to me what family docs can accomplish, but that would be the biggest thing is it's, it's probably more stressful than you think. So if you can give them a wide berth here and there, it, it would be a huge blessing for everybody. Andrew, if there's somebody listening who's thinking about going into family medicine or as a child who might be thinking about it, what resources would you recommend for them? Number one, CMA. I'm a, <laughs> we all are here. This is the official radio program, as we know. Um, but if you're thinking about family medicine, spend time with family medicine physicians. If you're a Catholic, you need to find a Catholic family medicine physician to spend time with. It will change your life. The practice is different. When I was in medical school, I, family medicine was not one of my favorite rotations. I liked the, the doctor enough, but the rotation, I was kind of down on that for a lot of reasons. Um, I had my parents, so I knew what I was getting into. But if you're interested, go to the CMA boot camp, go to the annual meeting. This year, sign up for the virtual meeting. Next year, we'll see you in Orlando for sure. And that'd be your best option. And, and do you have any final comments before we take our last break? I, I would just say do it. If, if you feel called to medicine at all, and family medicine in particular, you will not regret it because there are so many options, and uh, that's what you should do if you're even thinking about it. You've heard it from the horse's mouth, Andrew Mullally. We'll be back to wrap this up in just a minute here from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio. You're back with Dr. Doctor, our special edition with our special guest and co-host, Dr. Andrew Mullally, talking about family medicine. And it's time for the medical trivia question. Tom has gone beyond himself this episode to make certain that no one gets all three of the questions, right? But in case you fell asleep when he was reading the earlier part of the question, uh, recap. This is a special episode with three co-hosts, so there's three parts to the question. Now, in 2018, Physician Specialty Data Report of the Association of American Medical Colleges, there were about 900,000 physicians. Question one, of the 900,000, how many of them were, like Dr. Mullally, practicing family medicine? There were a... Uh, no, I know, I know. I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at the script, you're, so you're I You're one now. of them. <laughs> so, uh, almost 114,000 or 13%. So, about one in eight physicians was a family physician, which wow, still, surprisingly, isn't enough. It's probably much higher in places like the United Kingdom. Yeah. yeah. They, they talk about the triangle um, inverted or, or upward facing with how many are primary care. And in America, I, I don't want to jump ahead. I don't think this is the third one. Only about a third or less than half of the doctors are primary care. And right. so in other countries, it's the vast majority. Right. So it's, it's very different here. Uh, second question was there's only one field of medicine that has more first-year residents after medical school. What is it? And I suspect that uh, you knew this, Andrew. Yeah, I, I, I suspected this. Most of my friends, I'd say, chose this as their specialty. Oh, yeah, and that's internal medicine. Uh, they had um, almost three times as many first-year residents. So there are nearly 4,000 family medicine residents in their first year, and there were nearly 10,000 internal medicine residents. Um, Andrew, don't you think it's fair to say the majority of those internal medicine residents, though, they planned to keep going. They weren't going to stop and be a general internal medicine. They were doing that as a prerequisite to be a cardiologist or a somethingologist or something else. That's right. I'd say it's a, if somebody knows that they want to practice general medicine, I'd say most people would choose family over I am. Mm, right. In fact, it said that 88% of those in internal medicine internships went on to do fellowships or subspecialty. And the final question is, uh, among all physicians, family physicians are second only to child and adolescent psychiatrists in remaining in the state where they did their training. So if you can get someone in your state to train in family medicine, there is a great chance they'll stay there. What is that percentage chance? Did that number surprise you, Andrew? 
Uh, you know, it didn't. The, the number's 56.1%. So yes, a little over half of family medicine residents will stay in the state where they trained. So which is a good argument for starting local family medicine programs. I think so, especially if you want to address the shortage. Um, our community is one that's done great at that. I know a lot of places are. If you can get them to come there and train, a lot of them are going to stay. We've been blessed to have Andrew, his story, his specialty today. And we've been blessed to have you listening to another episode of Dr. Doctor, the award-winning official radio program and podcast of the Catholic Medical Association. We come to you from the virtual studios of Redeemer Radio on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. And please share the good news. We hope you think it's good news of Dr. Doctor with a friend and invite them to listen on their favorite podcast app or at RedeemerRadio.com forward slash doctor. And be sure to rate and review our show and help other listeners find us. Also, please send us your questions or tell us how something you heard on Dr. Doctor changed your life. Be sure to tune in next week as well for your appointment with Dr. Doctor. This is Dr. Tom McGovern. And I'm Dr. Chris Stroud. And Dr. Andrew Mullally signing off until your next dose of Dr. Doctor. Dr. Doctor is the official radio program of the Catholic Medical Association, whose members are dedicated to upholding the principles of the Catholic faith in the science and practice of medicine. The views expressed on Dr. Doctor do not necessarily represent those of your co-hosts or the Catholic Medical Association. Find our past episodes and keep up with the latest from Dr. Doctor by subscribing in your favorite podcast app and following us on Facebook. Get links to follow and subscribe or submit a question for our doctors by texting the word doctor to the Holy Cross College text line at 260-436-9598 or visit RedeemerRadio.com slash doctor. I'll never forget the day I ended up in the hospital when I tried to commit suicide after my abortion. Abortion may cause depression, anxiety, suicidal behaviors, and substance abuse. 42% of women who've had abortions have experienced major depression within the last four years. That's almost double the rate of depression in women who never became pregnant. The risk of anxiety disorders also doubled. Women who have had abortions were twice as likely to drink alcohol at dangerous levels and three times as likely to be addicted to illegal drugs. A large study showed that those who aborted had an over five-fold increased risk for suicide during the first year after an abortion. As alarming as these statistics are, they cannot convey the tragedy of losing someone who takes her own life after an abortion. If you've had an abortion or know someone who has and needs help, you can contact the Stacy's Alley Foundation or Project Rachel. The Catholic Medical Association supports your right to know. Find out more, visit cathmed.org.